Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is the best of This is Nashville. This week, we're bringing you a few of our best episodes of 2022. This one is all about how country music isn't as white as some of the powers that be might lead you to believe. It first aired on the one-year anniversary of the Black Opry. Holly G first started the Black Opry to provide a home for Black artists and Black fans of country, blues, folk, and Americana music. And it quickly picked up. Now it has a touring musical showcase called the Black Opry Review. Holly joined us back in April alongside Derek Campbell of the country duo, The Kentucky Gentleman, who performed at the one-year anniversary party for the Black Opry that night. Holly, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to be able to celebrate in so many different ways, and this is definitely one of the highlights, so I'm excited to be here. Well, we're so excited to have you. And Derek, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So happy to be here. So, Holly, let me start with you. Tell me why you created the Black Opry. So I'm just a huge country music fan. I love all kinds of music, but country music is what I really, really connected with ever since I was a very small child. And for as long as I have had that connection with it, I've never been able to see myself in it Um, in any capacity. You don't see yourself in the videos or on the stages or even in the crowds, in the audience, at the shows. And so... You know, for a long time, I just kind of accepted, like, that's just the way that it is. If you love it, you got to love it from the outside. And then um, summer of 2020, after George Floyd got murdered and the whole country was in this, like, abreast unrest, I was, like, I was thinking of the different things that I consume and how they contribute to the larger culture. Mm. And country music is, like, the biggest thing that I consume. I'm always listening to country music if I'm washing dishes in the shower. It doesn't matter. That's what I'm doing. And so... I realized I was like, I can't keep consuming it this way because it's contributing to, you know, a a harmful culture. And so I started exploring and trying to find platforms or things that supported um, marginalized country artists. If there were any, I didn't even know if there were any and I couldn't really find very much. The only thing I did find luckily was Reese Palmer, who was just about to launch Color Color Me Country Radio on Apple Music. And she exposed me to so many different artists and it was like a whole nother world opened up. I did not know country music could look like that. Mm. And one thing that Reese would say a lot is like, if I'm doing this and we have this one platform, there need to be five more of us that are doing it and creating other platforms as well. And so I just kind of answered that call and that's how Black Opry was started. So when you created this platform, what were your expectations? I literally just, I say this all the time and I think people think I'm joking, but I just wanted like five people to talk to about country music because I had been yelling into a void on the internet for so long. Um, like the the people in my circle don't know or listen to country music. So, you know, I'm yelling, watching the CMT awards and tweeting about it and, you know, talking about who has a new song out and like getting nothing back from those conversations because I couldn't find like my people that would want to interact with me about that. And so that was what I needed from it. It was really a way for me to heal my own relationship with country music. And I was just hoping to find more people that look like me that wanted to have conversations just about good music and the stuff that I liked. And I have been like, I'm still very overwhelmed and surprised at 
what it ended up being. I try really hard not to project onto it what I want it to be and let it grow into what it needs to be for for all of us. And so giving the space, the freedom to evolve naturally has just let it become something really beautiful. Derek, when you heard of the Black Opry, what was your initial reaction? Um, Honestly, before that Holly always reached out just as a, a fan of our music, and we were always really appreciative of of someone that was willing to tell us, "Hey, you know, I love what you're doing," and that that isn't something that as a black artist we were getting we were getting so much. Mm. But um, then she was like, "I after some conversation, she's like, so I'm starting something. I've got this idea. Um, if y'all if y'all want to be a part of it, like feel free. We." open arms and like there was no convincing that needed to be had at all we um it, it was it was pretty overwhelming to figure out that like she was really doing it and doing it in a grand way um without even realizing what she was doing for us did you face roadblocks in your career as you know black men performing country music yes one 100 percent. actually I, i've spoken before about um how our very first meeting with an executive they told us that uh there was told us about Mickey Guyton, that she had this deal and they don't know what to do with her and that we were going to end up just like her. They're not going to know what to do with us, that we weren't marketable. And uh, I think today, today's progress shows exactly how marketable we are and how talented as artists we all are. As you were going through experiences like that, had you and your brother been looking for something like the Black Opry to find community in? Honestly, it's hard to, it was hard to imagine because it was had never been done before. So we I wouldn't say we were looking for it. We it was something we needed, but we didn't know that it was possible. So Holly, you know, I'm interested like in the process of getting the word out about the Black Opry. Did you find that people were really open and excited to become involved? You know, I was not expecting people to be open and excited just because when you are a black person that operates in country music in any capacity, whether it's a fan, an artist, whatever, you're always told you're the only one, like you're, you're a unicorn. There are not other people like you. And so I was expecting nothing. You know, I was hoping maybe we could find a couple more artists or fans like the Kentucky gentleman and but to see the way that everybody like responded to it and it's people from all backgrounds. I've had so many white people reach out to me and say, this is something that I wanted because now I can feel good about consuming country music and knowing that I'm not contributing to a culture that's toxic. And so it's just been really fascinating to me to see how much positive response we've got. We don't, don't get me wrong. I do get hate mail and there's a lot of like negative feedback that I do get, but the positive has so far outweighed the negative. I think in country music and in Nashville, there's like a bubble and people within that forget that there's such a huge world outside of it. Mm-hmm. And that's why we don't center everything that we do in Nashville because the country music fans are out there. They're outside of this little part of the world or the country or whatever. And they're everywhere and they're so ready and excited for something that's more inclusive. Now, you know, you've created this community for people to be a part of. Derek, how does it feel to be in this community with people who have had, you know, very similar experiences to yours? Um, honestly, in the country world, a lot of times it's celebrated to be similar to one another, um, to be in this Black Opry family where we all embrace each other's individualities and all of our backgrounds, all of our styles, all of we all sing from different places and we all we're coming from different places. It is it's something that uh, we don't take for granted at all. Uh, it 
it feels incredible. It's a family reunion every time we reunite. It's, uh, it's I don't. It's just something to be super, super grateful for. And I actually met their mom. Uh, oh, we did a okay. show in Kentucky, and I'm very. I don't know why, but I just took to them really well, and I'm just like, those are my babies. And so when I met <laughs> their mom, I'm like, I'm not stepping on your toes, but. These are my children, too. Like, I just love them so much. And she gave me the biggest hug, and she thanked me, and she said, nobody takes care of them the way that you do, so thank you for that. Mm. And, of course, I went back to Green Room and sobbed for, like, 20 minutes. <laughs> but it just it, it feels good to be able to do that for people. You mentioned something, Derek. You talked about the individual nature of where everybody comes from in performing this. And, you know, we look at a lot of popular music, particularly music where African Americans are at the forefront, hip-hop, so to speak. And... A lot of it sounds exactly the same, but yet there's this individual nature where country music artists can come with their own artistry and not be judged for it. You're actually honored and praised for it. Talk to me about that. It is, it's, I guess, just like um, other fellow black opera member, Roberta Lee talks about in her uh, song, Ghetto Country Streets, just our talking about our different perspectives and no one to look and invalidate that and say that that's wrong. She um, She talks about how you know, in other country music, they're like trailer parks and this and that. And she's like, we had like projects get like in what we call like the ghetto and certain ex like expectations and certain words that we use. And it's just to have those different kind of perspectives where all of us can relate and all of us have seen those things. And we and other people have in their heads, this is what's country and this isn't what's country. And we're all looking at each other in the room like we were all country is all get out. And mm. it is something that. You know, you go so long, someone telling you that this, that that's not country or that's that you should go sing this instead. It's uh, when you're in a room with all these people who just are telling their stories, speaking, speaking their minds in ways that inspire you every single every time that someone opens their mouth. That's a uh, that's it, it teaches you to be even more embracing of other people. What can we expect from tonight's performance? Oh, we're getting all oh, we're gonna all about the fun. If you haven't seen us perform yet, all all we want to do is dance, dance and sing, and so it's gonna be complete good vibes, quote unquote. <laughs> it's gonna be great vibes, and we're just gonna we're just gonna have a great time. So, Holly, tell me, what's your hope for the future of the Black Opry? Mm. My hope is that we can create something outside of the traditional structures of country music that sustains itself past when this trend dies down. I think a lot of people are excited about what we're doing right now because it's trendy, but white people very quickly get exhausted talking about racism and dealing with the dynamics of that within whatever spaces they operate in. So I think that it's really important for us to build something that's sustainable without the support of the mainstream country industry. Um, and that's what gets me so excited about the tour because we don't rely on anybody else for that. We have a booking agent. Everything is booked under our brands and we're able to bring new artists to the table um, and give these opportunities away. We have over 50 shows throughout the rest of the year and we have shows booked all the way out until spring of 2023. Mm. And so I'm hoping that this continues to keep that momentum up so it can be something that, you know, artists can, you know, I got a gap in my schedule. Let me go play some shows with the Black Opry to Review to keep me working. Yeah. Um, I, I really want us to have our own things. Derek, where would you like to see the Black Opry go from here? My goodness. I've, I think, big no matter what. I honestly, <laughs> um, I see, I see, I mean, I see our our venues getting bigger. I see even more, like our family expanding so much. I see all of us as going on tour 
with not only each other, but other artists who are embracing what the Black Opera is doing. Um, I see, I don't know, I see us taking over. That is Derek Campbell, who performs in the Kentucky Gentleman with his twin brother, Brandon. We're going to go out on one of their songs called Whatever You're Up For. Yeah, you love to keep me guessing. And you know that's fine with me. You know you give my heart be racing. You're that turn me up gasoline. As long as I'm with you. Whatever you choose. It don't matter what we do. They tell me what it's gonna be I'm down for whatever you're up for Staying in, sipping wine on the front porch We're downtown, we can burn up the dance floor Hit the black top, don't stop till it's just us around Hang back, slip your blue jeans off I put the bottle on ice in my truck bed toolbox I'm all in, yeah, whatever you're up for The Kentucky Gentleman played at the one-year anniversary for Nashville's Black Opry this past April when we first aired this episode about diversity in country music. It's the best of This Is Nashville 2022. We'll be right back. Colonna, and this is the best of This Is Nashville. If you look at country music videos or listen to top country music stations, you will probably not see a very diverse representation in the genre. But that doesn't mean that other voices aren't making songs and performing. My next guest has been working to highlight diverse voices in country music for decades. Frankie Staten is a singer-songwriter who led the Black Country Music Association back in the 1990s. Frankie, welcome to This Is Nashville. Well, thank you for having me. Such an honor to have you with us. Now, you've been in the game for quite some time. Tell me, what was it like for you as you tried to make your way into the country music industry? Um, it was absolutely awful, Um to be a, a creative person uh, that heard music running through my head 24 hours a day and trying to uh, discern if my music was as commercial or as good as what I heard on the radio, and I do believe it was. I spent many years in the Bluebird Cafe listening to the best songwriters in the city. But when I would want to pitch my songs, you could, you could feel the atmosphere in the room change. And then I would go through this whole litany of questions. Why do you want to do this? This is not about you. Uh, has nothing to do with you people. And uh, one day I said, I'm getting ready to go research my history and find out. And what I found out floored me. And um, I knew that not only I, but many other black people had a right to be here. Um, and I responded to a story in the New York uh, News and Record that said, um, why don't you have more diversity in country music? Music Row said they don't like it. They can't sing it. It's not about them. We've looked for them. We can't find them. And so I said, OK, you're telling me one thing and the public something else. And I'm going to challenge the story. 
And so I had the first Black country music showcase at the Bluebird Cafe uh, in 1997. Take me back to Nashville during that time, like when the Black Country Music Association was formed. Everyone was so frustrated because we were just constantly rejected and looked at as though we were like nuts. Like, why do you, why, why would you want to sing this music? And I finally said, you know, to somebody once, I said, why don't you tell God to only give me rhythm and blues songs? If that's the situation, you know, um, I can't, I'm not, I can't say, well, I can only write this type of music. I can't help it if if that's what I'm writing. And um, I I just will never forget just being literally uh, in a publishing appointment and the man telling me to my face, you know, um, there's no way you could write a song like this. And when I look back at it, I know my gender had as much to do with it as the color of my skin, because women uh, have always been treated bad in country music. A handful would make it and the rest would just be treated like trash. And then me being a diverse woman made it even worse. So it, it was very, very hard. It was very hard. It sounds like there was a, intentionally a wall set up to prevent you from even getting close And tell me, did you turn to icons of other musical genres for help and assistance? If you did, what was their reaction? I went to Russell Simmons. I got to Russell Simmons, to Robert Johnson, who uh, owned BET. We got an artist on uh, LA Live uh, out of uh, Los Angeles on BET. And Russell, I actually talked to Russell twice. And Russell said, Frankie, I don't know anything about country music. And I said, well, Russell... Nobody knew anything about hip hop till you founded it. I actually went to the hip hop summit, which was at Opryland Hotel and stood up and said, can a hip hop radio walk urban country through your back door so we can get some airplane? They were like, who is that woman? (laughs) Hmm. So yeah, I I really exhausted every possibility. Uh, But for me to talk to label heads here, they just completely ignored me. Now, okay, so you 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 talked to Russell Simmons, who was a co-owner of Def Jam Records, a very popular, seminal hip-hop label in the 80s, and helped the genre really explode. How do you feel now about seeing artists like Lil Nas X, who has very much a country and hip-hop within his music? Well, I always knew that would happen. I said, I said, if we come into country music, it's going to be so many subcultures created that's going to be shocking. I already knew it. I saw it. It would be every kind of branding you could think of. And um, I, I went after that. I went after that and just could not get it. But as usual, today, the women are leading the way. And uh, to see the president of the Country Music Association, to see uh, Fram Leslie from uh CMT, so many people, Leslie Fram from CMT, work with Holly. That's that's a wonderful thing. It's it's a beautiful thing to happen. It's just that I was ahead of my time. You know, many of us don't know the many contributions that African-Americans have made to country music. And you alluded to this earlier. As you grew in the industry, after you had these experiences and you said to yourself, okay, I'm going to do my research and learn the history and your knowledge expanded. What did you learn? Oh, my God. Oh my, you know, um, I am haunted by a man out of Kentucky named Arnold Schultz, 
who is uh, one of the greatest guitarists that ever lived, was never recorded, but was just shockingly the best they had ever seen. And his uh, thumb picking style was passed on down uh, to Merle Travis, who passed it to Chet Atkins, who passed it to millions of people. Not only did he play guitar, he was a, a fiddle virtuoso as well. Uh, and then down in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, uh, Rufus T. Todd Payne was a um, street musician who was like a one-man band, a multi-instrumentalist. And the children would follow him everywhere. And Hank Williams was eight years old when he started following Rufus. And, and Hank's mom said, come over to our house. We'll feed you. We'll pay you to teach Hank to play. And little did he know this man was going to be considered the father of country music someday. And before that, Jimmy Rogers played with the Black Railroad men. He, he was influenced uh, by them. When Bob Wills created Western Swing, he was trying to emulate Bessie Smith out of Chattanooga. Elvis Presley was, was following uh, Sister Rosetta Thorpe. I mean, it just goes on and on. Here's Otis Blackwell writing all these number one hits and nobody knew anything about it. It's just shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Holly G is still with us. Holly, I'm wondering, like, as you what are you thinking as you hear Frankie tell us all these stories? I think that <clears throat> it's always important for me to remind people that I'm not doing anything new and I love any opportunity where I can lift up Frankie's voice because Frankie did this work long before I was here to do it. And the only thing, the only difference between when she did it and when I'm doing it is just that I have different tools. But, you know, I try to make it very clear that, you know, I'm not like the spearhead of this movement. I, I stand on the shoulders of Frankie and all of these artists, and there's so much rich history there um, that we have to pull from and build upon. And I just... I, Frankie is just amazing. I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, we are in this space where we can work together and we can have her join us for these things. I, I admire her so much. How much did you know about Frankie and Cleve Francis's work in the 1990s? Well, see, this is a, the problem like that. That work is not celebrated and talked about. So that's something that I had to dig for to find. And, you know, I found the initial bits and pieces of it through listening to Reese Palmer. Reese is so good about highlighting our history and things like that. So I, I found out about Frankie and Cleve through Reese and, you know, just started digging through stuff and looking up what they had done. Um, and it was, I'll, I'll never forget, we were at a, um, a premiere for CMT for their Charlie Pride special. And I saw Frankie and I was like, oh, my God, that's Frankie Staten. <laughs> and I walked up to introduce myself and she's like, you're Holly D. And I'm like, how do you know who I am? Because <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's so cool to be able to exist in space with people that you look up to and can learn from. And I think the biggest lesson that I've taken from Frankie is she's, she taught me, she says, when you meet me, you meet many. And so I try to really just incorporate that and live by that in this work that we're doing and make sure that anytime you know, I'm brought to a table. I'm bringing everybody with me. Frankie, do you remember that moment of meeting Holly? Oh, absolutely. At the Charlie Pride <laughs> Giants <laughs> show. And um, I was just excited about it. And I had one of the singers uh, from the Black Country Music Association with me, Valerie Ellis. And 
And Holly is like, I know, I know who both of you are. And we were looking at her like she was crazy. Like, really? If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking about country music with singer-songwriter Frankie Staten and the Black Opry founder, Holly G. I'd like to bring in my next guest to share some historical perspective with us. Amanda Marie Martinez is a doctoral student studying the country music industry from the 1970s to the 90s. She's also worked on the new documentary for Love and Country. Amanda, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here alongside um, Holly and Frankie, of course. We're really honored to have you with us. Tell me, how did you get into your line of research? Sure. Yeah. So I, you know, I like, you know, Holly was saying also a huge country music fan, um, grew up listening to it. And I'm from uh, Northern California, from the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and I am Mexican-American, so I grew up listening to not just Mexican regional music, but also punk rock, because my mom was a punk rocker, but also country music. And my love of country music uh, really kind of grew into an obsession by the time I was in college. So as an undergrad at UC Berkeley, I started to, uh, you know, when I had to do history kind of research papers, I started to, you know, gravitate towards writing about country music because I loved it. Um, and as I did that, I grew kind of frustrated with the kind of singular narrative that existed in that scholarship, right? Which was, uh, you know, the story that country music started as the music of white rural Southerners. And, you know, when they moved to urban centers in the years surrounding World War II, they took their music with them and then proceeded to pass the music on to, you know, their descendants. And that's you know, the, the way that we understand the kind of huge growth of country music over the last century or so. And that was certainly, you know, not a narrative that I saw myself in. And, you know, as I eventually started, um, you know, grad school and uh, research uh, for my dissertation, it became very clear, right, that black and brown artists and fans have always been here, right? And, you know, country music is absolutely built on especially uh, blackness, right? And also, you know, this brown presence that's always been there as well. So, um, you know, it was, you know, crazy, especially the 1970s, you know, coming across all these ads, especially for black women in country music, right? That were trying to make it as black uh, country artists. Uh, so again, they've always been here, right? So for me, there was this big disconnect, um, you know, like Frankie was talking about is like, why and how has this narrative persisted when it's never been the reality? Holly, when you hear Amanda talk about the history of this industry, what comes to mind? You know, it's disappointing because the more that I learn and hear, it just makes me think about what could have been. Like, if we were given the proper respect and honor within this industry that, you know, our ancestors earned, you know, I think about how different my relationship to country music would have been. And I think about, you know, how different, you know, Frankie's career should have been. And I think about, you know, how we could have consumed this differently and the way it just like I think about not having to do this work. Right. I, I would have been able to enjoy this music without having it be a burden. 
And so there's there's a, a heaviness there and a sadness, but there's also like some underlying hope there because we are having these conversations now. We do have people like Amanda that are so dedicated and committed to getting the word out there about, you know, this forgotten history. Frankie, it looks like the industry has had opportunities to truly diversify, but it resisted time and time again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that Valerie uh, was taken to Warner Brothers by Randy Travis's manager and um, they gave her a developmental deal, worked with her a little while and then decided we don't know what to do with a black woman. We had a band um, from Lynette, Alabama, all black country band. I mean, you know, I could align them with groups like Diamond Rio, uh, Rio and Shenandoah and uh, Wheels was the name of the band. I've never seen anything like it. They took to the stage at one of our showcases, and I literally thought I was in some major arena looking at a group of seasoned musicians, singers, traveled all over the country, even in Europe, and uh, had a developmental deal on Asylum Records, subsequently uh, were dropped. So there were many people uh, that were just passed over, ignored, not given a chance to tour. And they would always tell us, well, we have Charlie Pride, so we're not a racist industry. Mm-hmm. And Cleve Francis said, and I will quote Cleve again, they shook the country music tree, 30 some million black people and one brother fell out in 75 years. Let <laughs> 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 um, me ask you, how how do our misconceptions about country music negatively impact us? Well, they negatively impact us because being that there's not a presence of diversity there, people look at us like we're crazy. Like, well, why do you want to do this? You know, you know, you're looked at like you're crazy. But but now when you see the Black Opry, that's a whole different ballgame because you understand, you know, it's not one, two, three, four. There's six singers up here on stage. I had as many as 18 on stage at one time. So it it negatively uh, affects specifically like somebody in the audience. Like, I don't know why they're doing that. So the more they see us, the more they'll show up and support us. The more we, here's my quote, country music is off to a great start, but when all of the people in America, when all of the different diverse people get to tell their country story and sing their song, then it will come to be all that it should be. You know, Frankie, we're about to play a song of yours called Leading Lady, which I understand has some lines written by Mac Vickery. Can you tell me a little about about him? Well, I, I just heard that song in my head. I really wanted Tammy Wynette to sing it. And uh, I met Mac. I used to sing on the Ralph Emery Morning Show. And I met Mac and I asked him, I said, would you listen to my music? He said, I will. And he said, if it's no good, I'm going to tell you. And I played him that song. He said, oh, you wrote that? And he, he kept asking me to play songs. I just kept playing them songs. And he walked me into Sony and tried to get them to sign me that very morning. Mm. He said, this girl's got beautiful music. And of course, they refused. And he was a broken man. And he said, look, I know you're a star. I was down in um, Muscle Shows a couple of years ago. And I walked into the Alabama Songwriters Hall of Fame. I had some, some friends of mine from England. And the first gold record I saw was Max. 
And I just put my hand up against that glass and started crying. And they said, why are you crying, Frankie? And I said, because this man fought for me. And that's something you never forget. That is singer-songwriter Frankie Staten. She was joined by Holly G, creator of the Black Opry. Thank you both for joining us. Here is Frankie Staten's leading lady. If my face isn't shown on the silver screen And the world never knows my name I'm a star that I shine them all Cause sweetheart, you gave me my break And playing the part of your superstar Is worth all the pain and heartache Thanks for tuning in this hour for the best of This Is Nashville 2022. Today's episode is all about diversity in country music. There's more coming up after the break, so stay with us. This is Nashville. And this is the best of This Is Nashville. Earlier in the show, we talked about the lack of black voices in the country music industry. But it is a general lack of diversity within country music. There are many Native American, Latinx, and Asian American musicians vying to become recognized for the music they love performing. My next guest is Ben Park a musician and the founder of The Shoes Off Collective, showcasing Asian American and Pacific Islander songwriters. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Oh my goodness. Um, I was listening in during that entire session. It's it's a real honor just listening to Holly and Frankie and you, and it's, it's a privilege being here. Thank you. Oh, we're really happy to have you with us. So talk to me. Tell me about your journey in the music industry. So... I moved to Nashville a few years ago. Um, I think starting in uh, middle school, I um, started playing drums, guitar, I started writing songs. Um, in high school, I started busking. I got my first gig playing in a, a coffee shop. Um, and then like after graduated high school, I started playing all over my home area of Michiana, which is uh, like the border. It's like the Michigan and Indiana area, that sort of state border. Um, so I learned quite a bit about, um, the live music industry before I moved to Nashville. And then I learned even more after I moved to Nashville. Um, but yeah, uh, so I've been writing songs and, and performing for a while. It's, um, but it's always been that as explained in much further, more eloqu eloquent detail <laughs> of the previous guests, um, <laughs> That yes, there is a lack of diversity. There is an untapped market of, of people in the music industry. Talk to me a little bit about that. Like when you got here, 
What were you seeing as you attended songwriting workshops and shows? And like, how did that affect your attitude about country music? Ironically, I didn't uh, really fall in love with country music until after I moved to Nashville, hmm. which is not really everybody's story. Like, you know, every like most people love country music before they move to Nashville. But like, I fell in love with the genre. Um, I like any genre that really brings that sense of community, which in this case is country music as well as various other genres. But yeah, before and after I moved to Nashville, I've always been like one of the, I've always been like the only or one of the couple Asian Americans in a music venue or at a writer's round, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and personally for me, like I don't, um, I don't use my race as a gimmick. I don't really like use my race as like part of a brand, but at the same time, I realized that I need to represent um, my ethnicity, my race, my heritage, my culture, because there is such a lack of that. Is that what motivated you to create Shoes Off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, ironically, I started this back in January. It started as um, a bunch of messages I sent on Instagram to a bunch of Asian artists I already knew or were aware of. Um, the yeses I got from that were so overwhelming to the point where instead of just making it like a small writer's round series, I decided to establish it as my own agency. It's not like an official LLC or anything like that. I hope to make it that in the, in the future. But yeah, I'm booking, I'm booking a tour for somebody. I'm starting uh, various uh, shows at various venues. Um, and it's all the word I'm driven by with shoes off is equity mm -hmm. as opposed like equality is not bad, but equity is really what gets people's foot in the door. Amanda Marie Martinez is still with us. Amanda, you gave a talk to the Center for Popular Music titled Tequila, Margaritas, and Mexican Beaches. Country music loves Latino culture, so why doesn't it in include more Latinos? You know, talk to me about how country music uses Latino imagery to promote its image. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, there's a deep history of this. I mean, uh, you know, going back to, you know, Western Swing, you know, that was absolutely built on Latinx strictly Mexican, Mexican-American uh, sounds and, and images. And, you know, you think about a career-defining song like El Paso by Marty Robbins, um, you know, up until the present where, you know, especially, you know, one of the, the key images in country music today is the beach cowboy. And so often, you know, that beach cowboy is on a, you know, a Latin American beach, right? Where he's got his um, Latina with him and, you know, uh, drinking his margarita or his tequila or et cetera. Right. So, um, you know, it, it's clear that, uh, country music today is absolutely building on a, a love for, uh, Mexican culture, um, or Latinx culture more broadly. But what is really striking about this historically is that, 
um, there have been, you know, virtually no commercially successful Latinx artists historically. They have existed, right? Including superstars like uh, a Freddie Fender or Johnny Rodriguez. But on the whole, the statistics are really, really um, striking. You know, there's, of course, um, the scholar Jada Watson, who works on um, data uh, regarding the country music charts, right? And her um, research has shown that since 1944, uh, I believe just 0.5% of uh, the songs on the, the country music charts have been recorded by Latinx artists. And of course, uh, this also gets to the gendered issue that uh, Frankie brought up because almost all of these songs were uh, recorded by men um, and just a few men, including um, uh, not just Freddie Fender, John Rodriguez, but also someone like Rick Trevino, who um, had a number of huge hits in the in the '90s. So, um, you know, it, it it tracks with a broader trend of of country music borrowing from Black culture, from uh, Latinx culture, um, Indigenous culture, and you know, not uh, supporting those individuals themselves. You know, I want to play a little bit of a song by Cataluna and Alex Garrido. It's called Yo, Yo Quiero Amarte. No temas, quiero ayudarte. Yo quiero, yo quiero, yo quiero amarte. Enseñame, solo quiero amarte. Amanda, tell us about what Kat and Alex are trying to do in country right now. Yeah, I mean, Kat and Alex are, you know, an excellent duo, uh, uh, being uh, Cuban and Puerto Rican, um, a contemporary artist. And, you know, it's incredible what they do, right, where they um, sing songs and uh you know, country songs in Spanish, right? And and they they kind of gain traction by doing that, you know, through social media. Um, and now they are, um, you know, recording those songs, their their own songs in both English and Spanish. Um, and I absolutely hope that it catches on. Um, there's there's always been those listeners, that demographic there. Um, but, you know, uh, we'll have to wait and see, right? This is not the first time uh, this has been tried before. Uh, I just mentioned Rick Trevino in the 90s, and he is someone uh, who also recorded uh, his songs in both English and Spanish. Um, and that is not something, you know, unfortunately that caught on after that. So um, I'm hopeful this time is different, but, you know, it's also striking to me also just thinking about, you know, listening to Holly and Frankie talk where, you know, the industry has felt um, this pressure before, right? And things haven't changed. So I'm just hopeful in this instance um, that things do change for the good. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. My guests are Ben Park and Amanda Marie Martinez. We're talking this hour about the growing push to bring more diversity into the country music industry. You know, in, we were talking earlier about representation and the idea of equal opportunity versus equity. 
Ben, you mentioned that. I want you to go into that a little bit deeper on your thoughts. I believe equity is more important than equality. Like, I want to incorporate both, but I believe equity is more important than equality just because of that issue of representation and that untapped market of artists who want to play the same genres that predominantly white people dominate. But um, there might be a stigma that, like, not enough Asian people or not enough there are not enough black country artists. And then like the ones that are successful are more or less tokenized or like they're not intention. I don't think they're intentionally tokenized, but they're still tokenized in execution like uh, Jimmy Allen or Breland. Um, but that's exactly why I lean towards equity as opposed to equality, because um, it's not just the non-white artists versus the overwhelming white artists, but it's also um, the equity I want to bring to communities within the AAPI community. And for those who don't know that acronym, that stands for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, especially after the Atlanta shootings last year, everything that has been dwelling in the very back of my mind about the way that Asian women are treated in America, how people perceive me. Ever since Atlanta, all that really came to the forefront, and I believe it shouldn't have taken the deaths of human beings to really get me to get on my two feet. The point I'm trying to get at is that um, it's I could easily like book predominantly like pale-skinned East Asian men, but I recognize that within the AAPI community, like. Southeast Asians and like Pacific Islanders have faced their own form of discrimination like outside of America. It's that colorism that is especially dominant. I, I grew up, I'm Korean American. Like I was born in Chicago, grew up in Michigan, um, moved to Nashville. Like I am definitely not a brown Asian by any means. And I have to also recognize my own privilege mm. as well. It's not just equity in terms of like bringing more non-white artists uh, to more mainstream stages, but also um, more uh, Southeast Asians, more Pacific Islanders. Like I actively try to hunt out for specific uh, Pacific Islander artists as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Amanda, I want to end with you. You know, what do you want people listening to us today to walk away with? Yeah, well, you know, oftentimes people kind of ask me, you know, why I'm attacking country music. And I absolutely don't see it that way, right? Because I'm, I'm coming to this from a place of love, right? This is something I really love. And I think, you know, touching on, you know, what Holly was talking about earlier, um, which to me is the real paradox of country music, that it has this ability to be this such an inclusive, beautiful space, right? You know, also um, thinking about the work that Ben is doing as well. Um, and of course, Frankie uh, was doing uh, before all of us, um, you know, that, that it represents this paradox that it has always had this very, very broad appeal along, you know, not just racial lines, but also class, region, age. Uh, age is a big one for popular music, right? Where you don't, most, types of music are maybe associated with youth culture. Um, but country music has always had um, listeners across all of these spheres, right? So it has such this beautiful, inclusive potential, even though it has 
been marketed in such an exclusionary way. So I think that that is what, you know, I hope people uh, take from this, right, about the kind of radical potential of country music. That's country music historian Amanda Marie Martinez. She was joined by musician Ben Park. Thank you both for being with us today. It's been a pretty musical hour, so we're going to go out today with a song by Daniel Kim Etheridge. He's a Korean-American artist. He wrote Tired of Rising Above, in part as a reaction to the shootings in Atlanta in which six women of Asian descent were killed. Let's listen. Everything was equal, like they say inside the steeple. I wouldn't have to fight twice as hard for half as much. Playing fields level, I wouldn't do deals with the devil. I wouldn't have to turn my cheek and die at death by a thousand cuts. Running out of rope, enough's enough. I'm getting tired of rising. Thanks for joining us this hour for the best of This Is Nashville. Tomorrow's episode will take us out into the community with Gideon's Army's Violence Interrupters. This Is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudho. Shout out to the masterminds behind our theme music, LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Julie Height and our sister station, 91.1 WNXP. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. I wouldn't have to fight twice as hard for half as much. If playing fields were level, I wouldn't do deals with the devil. I wouldn't have to turn my cheek and die at death by a thousand cuts. Running out of rope and of Say inside that steeple, I wouldn't have to fight twice as hard for half as much. If playing fields level, I wouldn't do deals with the devil.